1: A romance does need to have basically the same things uh, every time. Like I know by which chapter, for instance, my characters, they have to have their first kiss. I mean, after 40 books, I think I've pretty much internalized the structure.
2: Welcome back to Working. I'm your host, Karen Hahn.
3: And I'm your other host, June Thomas.
2: Hi, June. How are you? I am fabulous, thank you. I just had some aubergines and courgettes. Those are some very romantic fruits, which gets me into my next question. Who did you talk to this week? (laughs) Wow.
3: The voice that we heard at the top of the show belongs to Harper Bliss. She is a really prolific author of romance novels whose work I've enjoyed And honestly, this was just one of those cases where I just wanted to know how and why she did certain things, made certain choices, you know, why she writes books in series, why she puts so much focus on friendship as well as love stories and Mm -hmm. why they're so international. And perhaps most of all, how on earth is she so productive?
2: Well, that is a lot to talk about. So I'm very Uh excited to hear your conversation. But before we get to that, what can we look forward to in the Slate Plus segment this week?
3: So in one of Harper's series, one of the characters is a very senior politician. And that job is presented in a pretty accurate way. And I was really Mm. curious about how that came about. And I also wanted to know what she thought of people like me who listen to the audio version, rather than actually reading the book for
2: ourselves.
3: (laughs) Like, does she think that people like me who listen to her books are cheating?
2: That's so funny. And I feel like a very kind of hot button question that we don't actually hear a lot of. I'm very excited to hear that. And Slight Plus members will hear that at the end of the episode. But if you're not a Slate Plus member but want to hear that segment, why not join Slate Plus? As a member, you'll get no ads on any of our podcasts, unlimited reading on the Slate site, and member-exclusive episodes and segments from our show and other shows like The Waves, Culture Gap Fest, and Amicus. Sign up for Slate Plus now at slate.com workingplus to access all of Slate's content and support our work. All right, let's hear June's conversation with Harper Bliss.
3: Harper Bliss, welcome to Working. Thank you so much for having me. So how many books have you written? Well,
1: I have um, 37 published, but I've written a few more. Some of them ended up in the trash, obviously. (laughs) So I've written a couple.
3: So over what period did you write 37 books? Well, I
1: started writing in 2011. I published my first book in 2012, early 2012. So... Coming up to, what is that then? 11 years, I
3: guess. Wow. That is a prodigious rate, more even than I I thought. I'm really determined to learn the secret of your productivity. So I hope that will emerge over the course of our conversation. But I'm curious, do you feel like a very productive writer?
1: Well, definitely not always. (laughs) I guess when it comes to writing, like just pure first draft writing, I am pretty productive. Because, you know, once I start a book, I'm in it and I just, I go, right? I just, I need to finish it. But of course, I don't just write, right? There's subsequent drafts and there's all the other stuff. And, um, I could also compare myself because I say I've written 40 books, but there are many, many, many romance authors who've written many more in in this time span. You can always do more, but in general, I do feel quite productive. Yeah, I can't complain. No, no, absolutely not. Uh, How many have you written this year alone? I'm now writing my third book this year. I always aim for four. Four is like (sighs) the magic number, but... I don't think it's actually happened that I've written four, but I like to have the goal. Yeah, but there's always something, right? Life always gets in the way. So, But th- I'm good with three. So Yeah.
3: So the way that I found your books was I got caught up in one of the series. Um, you have a couple of series uh, that I'm aware of. There may be more. Um, there's this series called the Pink Bean series. There's Mm 10 novels in that. Uh, That name comes because uh, these books are centered on the Pink Bean, which is a chain of independent coffee stores in a neighborhood of Sydney, Australia. Uh, And then there are five seasons, um, which are five books in in a series called French Kissing. They're set in Paris, France. Um, How did you come to write those series? And Did you know from the start how the storylines were going to interact and develop?
1: Well, so I wrote French Kissing first, right? Like, actually, I started French Kissing, like, 10 years ago, I think. Like, when I first started out. So um, back then, for self-publishers, the advice was write in a series. So I said, well, I'll do that. (laughs) And uh, so I did French Kissing first, and but... um, I'm not a writer who plots out her story because that doesn't work for me. I mean, there are basically, I mean, there are many types of writers, but in general, broadly speaking, there are two. There are the Mm -hmm. ones who plot everything out and then there are the ones like me. They call them pantsers or like fly by the seat of your pants or or discovery writing and that's what I do. But of course, I mean, I have my characters, right? Because my books, they are very much... um, Character and um, conflict base. I mean, for French kissing, actually, it's a bit different because that was actually a bit more plotted. Because I had four main characters to start with, and mm-hmm. that's a bit more difficult, right? When when you just have two, like in your regular romance, when you just have two characters, I mean, you know how it's going to end, and <laughs> right. there's going to be some conflict along the way. But for French kissing, actually. For those four characters, I did need to do a little bit of plotting and I did. But since then, I haven't really plotted out all that much because it's it's not how I write. How I write is that I basically, I I read my own book as I'm writing it, which is a lot of fun. But that's yeah. also, I think, why I, I can write pretty quickly because I need to know what's going to happen next. <laughs> so
3: th- that's the yeah. trick. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I'm honestly shocked to learn that though, because... Just the idea of pantsing and being so productive is, 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 is just mind-blowing to me. But so French Kissing, you know, for those who haven't read them yet, I highly recommend them. Uh, as you say, it's four friends. The, the, the cast grows over the, the course of the series. Um, but it's set in a world or a number of worlds. Um, the Pink Bean is very interesting because... You know, as I said, there are these locations, uh, it's not just the coffee shops, but there are certain locations, but the cast really, um, you know, weaves in and out. How did those develop? How did those uh, come forth into the world?
1: Yeah. So after French kissing, because French kissing, you, you need to read the books in order. There's no Mm -hmm. other way. But for Ping Bean, I wanted to uh, write more like standalone. Like if someone started at book three, that would be okay. Although it is recommended to read them in order. It's more fun, right? For the reader as well. But because uh, characters from previous books always pop up in the next one, but you don't really have to read them in order and then Usually when I'm writing, like when I was writing book one, I was already thinking like, hmm, who shall book two be about? So then Uh I could already start thinking about it and like maybe putting in some some little teasers for the next book just to, you know, to increase um, read through after book one. Yeah. But uh, yeah, I, that is my standalone uh, series, Ping Bean. So it's it's a different way of approaching it, and also it's easier than writing French Kissing because by the end of French Kissing, I mean, I, I, I hired a reader to like write me a Bible, make me a Bible of everything ah. that ha- we call it a Bible. Yeah, it's like of, of everything that happens and all the characters and you know who they sleep with and things like that because I can't remember all of that after all these books right so that that's actually uh that has been very helpful with my productivity and this this person shout out to Claire by the way she Mm -hmm. also did it for the pink bean so now if I want to start on a new pink bean book which it's been a few years right I can just go through this it's a huge excel file I can just search in there for Characters like, for instance, just like a small thing, like the eye color of a character. Oh, my god. I, I can't remember that. But um, yeah, this woman, she wrote that all down for me, which is pretty amazing.
3: <laughs> wow. So what kind of things are in there? So the eye color, uh, who slept with whom? Yeah, and also per character, um, what they go through in
1: each book. And sometimes it's a small thing. Sometimes it's a big thing, like their profession, like all, their, all the details, really, of, of the character that she can find. Amazing, amazing. Otherwise, I, it wouldn't be possible, right? Yeah. I think a secret of productivity is also uh, hiring some help. Definitely, if you can. Yeah.
3: Yeah, I would love to know, you know, what kind of help you get. Um, I just want one more question about The Pink Bean. You mentioned that they're standalone. Did you write them kind of, you know, as I say, I believe there are 10 in that series. Did you write them kind of one after the other? Or did they kind of come out of audio? Were other books being published in the middle of that series?
1: Yeah, yeah. I, I think maybe one and two I did... After each other, but I did write other things in between. Just I don't know to mix things up a bit, <laughs> and also when when you've done ten books in a series, it's you want to go somewhere else, so to speak, right? It's just. I want to write something else and also writing a standalone is always going to be a bit easier than writing a series I mean they both have their pros and cons right because when you write a series you could it's like seeing old friends again in your characters and you already have you don't have to make everything up from scratch but you also have to stick to what you made
3: up before which sometimes can be annoying but, yeah. Um, and I'm sure that like me, people, the French kissing books, I've listened to them, but I listen to them kind of one after the other in very mm. swift succession. So if there'd been, you know, a, a continuity error, I'm I'm pretty sure I would have been, you know, aware of it. Uh, I didn't quite experience the pink bean boots in that way, but uh, it's super interesting the way that a reader uh, experiences them compared to the way that you create them. It's It's not the same. No, no, it's not. Most of your books, as you mentioned, are romances. Uh, They have a kind of an expected structure. Do you think in terms of the beats of romance when you are, well, pantsing, when you're writing? I do. I write to the
1: three-act structure, right? Like I know... By which chapter, for instance, my characters they have to have their first kiss, and I know when they have to have their big fight, and then I know how many chapters I have for them to make up because the ending is always the same, right? That that yes. makes it easy in a romance. It's always there's always a happily ever after. So I do definitely uh, have that. In the back of my mind, I also try to write down a couple of things, right? But it's mostly, it's just like act one, they get to know each other. Act two, after the kiss. So, <laughs> I mean, after 40 books, I think I've pretty much internalized the structure. Yeah. So, but yes, a romance does need to have, like, basically the same things uh, every time. But then it's the characters, of course, that, that make it very different from another book.
3: Yeah, I mean, I, I certainly wouldn't disagree that they're romances. But one of the things that I have really enjoyed about your books is the role that friendships play in them. Um, you know, as well as the love relationships, there are always, uh, especially in the series, I think. But uh, generally speaking, also in the sta- at least in the standalones that I've read, there's always a strong friend relationship for each character. Is that something you self-consciously program into your books? Yeah, I guess, because, well, obviously,
1: you can't just have your main characters, right? They need yeah. a sounding board, and they need someone to like drink too much wine with and stuff like that. <laughs> yeah. And uh, that's why I always have like good friends. But I think for French kissing specifically, I started writing... Um, when my wife and I, we moved to Hong Kong for, mm. for her work, and I didn't have a job, so I had plenty of time to write. But also, we arrived in Hong Kong, we didn't know anyone. Yeah. And I don't know, I mean, I'm not generally a person who who makes friends easily, like, at all. But in mm. Hong Kong, I don't know, it was so easy. And we made this, like, really great group of friends. And when you're away from home, your friends, they become your family, right? Like, your yeah. surrogate family. And I think I was really, like... I think that really inspired me when I was writing uh, French Kissing. And, well, I've been yeah. doing it since. But
3: Yeah, and, and also, again, you know, this is something that, yes, it's, this is in every, hopefully in every book, but definitely in every romance, you know, that there's this emphasis on communication. You know, the conflicts that people have are frequently about a failure to communicate or a, tr- a difficulty communicating and... Mm. To me, your books um, are very kind of. They almost have a message of, you know, please learn to communicate. Uh, again, to what extent are you aware of conveying that message in your books?
1: I think I'm pretty aware of that because, well, it's usually my characters. The communication, as you say, it's the only way for them to get out of their conflict. There is yeah. no other way, so they always have to through talk through everything very extensively and then it's like this big cathartic moment right but i right. will say that this is much easier to accomplish in fiction than in real life because <laughs> i i am one of the, i'm really bad at communication myself so i don't know maybe it's like it's my like when i'm writing all these conversations in my book it's like my own personal therapy
3: right yeah so, the author uh, gets to do some wish fulfillment too this yes, is how it's done definitely it's, definitely everybody go at it
2: yeah <laughs> We'll be back with more of June's conversation with Harper Bliss.
0: This podcast is sponsored by Ramp. Are you the decision maker in your company? Consider this. For the first time in decades, there's a better option for a corporate card and spend management platform. Meet Ramp, the only corporate card and spend management system designed to help you spend less money If you're a decision maker, adding Ramp could be one of the best decisions you've ever made. And now, get $250 when you join Ramp for free. Just go to Ramp.com slash easy. Ramp.com slash easy. R-A-M-P dot slash easy. Currents issued by Sutton Bank and Celtic Bank members of DIC. Terms and conditions apply.
2: Whether it's to ask us for advice on a creative problem, tell us a guest you'd like to hear on the show, or share your own creative triumphs, and we really love those, drop us a line at, working at slate.com or give us a ring at 304-933-WORK. And if you're enjoying this episode, don't forget to subscribe to Working wherever you get your podcasts. Now let's return to June's conversation with Harper Bliss.
3: So as I say, I'm a big fan of the, the series. And to me, they I think one of the reasons that I enjoyed them is they had some of the elements of another genre that's, that also doesn't get a lot of respect because it typically has or is intended for a female audience, and that is soap operas. Now, I love soap operas. Uh, I like romances. But how do you <laughs> feel when I call your books soap operas? Yeah,
1: oh, I feel great. I love soap opera. I love drama. I'm a drama queen, right? That's what my wife always says anyway. <laughs> but I said well, you know, being a drama queen is, uh, is what pays the bills, I say. Exactly. exactly. <laughs> and also, I, to what you say, like in, in publishing, romance, in publishing in general, romance is the biggest genre. There are so many, and romance authors... I think they keep like a lot of the business afloat of the business of publishing because yeah. people love romance. And when I say people, well, it's probably mostly women because yeah. a lot of men, they just refuse to read books written by women about their mm. loss, I say. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But um, it's also funny because, I mean, romance, it's about love and it's about friendship. And isn't that like the greatest thing there is really? Like <laughs> yeah. we're all so addicted to love, right? Read some romance. Why not? And uh, what I've also found, like 10 years in this business, right, like the romance writers, the indie publishers in romance, they're always ahead of the curve. They're always coming up with the next thing, Mm marketing-wise, I mean, or business-wise. Like Uh they are smart, and uh, they know how to sell their books, and they make a lot of money doing it. And to anyone say, I don't know, I don't feel disparaged at all. I'm very proud to be a romance writer, also it's it's a really great thing to do like i write in in lesbian romance which Mm -hmm. is you could say i think a pretty small genre but i make a really good living doing this i mean isn't that amazing and that's romance i come up with with a story of two women falling in love and this is my job
3: (laughs) so how can i ever take offense i say good for me (laughs) Uh, i would say so yeah um In addition to being a a lover of soap operas, I'm also a huge TV fan. Uh, So again, Mm -hmm. please know that I mean this is a great compliment. But um, Mm -hmm. to me, your books unspool in a very cinematic or televisual way. Um, You know, they're not written like screenplays. You know, they're definitely well-constructed novels. But to me, there's a a kind of a TV or or movie structure. Um, And I know you must feel this way to some extent because French Kissing was presented as Seasons, you know, instead of mm-hmm. books one through five, it's seasons one through five, and the chapters were mm-hmm. referred to as scenes. And I'd love to learn more about why you made that choice for French Kissing, and um, also, I guess since now I know it was the first thing you wrote, you know, why you left that structure.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, back when I started French Kissing, the serialized fiction thing, it was it was a thing. It was like really a thing, like a lot mm. back then a lot of, quite a few authors were doing it. So I jumped on it and I said, I'll try Mm. it. And it's actually quite a fun way to write because when you set out to write what I call an episode, Uh it's not very long. It's a lot shorter than a book. So when you start, it's much less daunting, right? And then you have the cliffhanger, which like, you know, after every episode, you have a good cliffhanger, people will keep on reading. Yeah. But it's true that I only did it for French kissing because um, it's quite restricting as well. Mm. Because, well, as I said, there's so much you need to remember, especially as as it goes on and there's new characters, but then an old character props up and, oh, what what did she say again? What did she do? So I think also business-wise, because like by season five of French kissing, not as many people were buying it anymore, mm-hmm. which I understand. I mean, there's always, when you do a series like that, that you have to read in order, There's, it's not like an actual television series, you know, where, right. where the viewership grows over time. It's yeah. a bit different also because, well, you can't always, like, time it exactly. Like, ideally, maybe if you have the new season out, like, every year or maybe two a year, yeah. I don't know. But, I yeah. mean, it's just me, right? It's not really doable, <laughs> So uh, I, right. it, it really was a thing at the time, but I think for a reason, it never really took off.
3: Would you like to be in a TV writer's room or write for TV and in some other context? I mean, you obviously kind of have this, you have a love of television, I know from your podcast that you do. Uh, is that something you would you would enjoy, do you think? Well, I love television very much. It's it's my main hobby.
1: If you listen to my (laughs) podcast, you surely know. Yes, but uh, but I'm not someone that you can just put in a room with other writers. I I write alone. I actually Mm. did a couple of co writes back. Yes, a couple of years back. I did one with my wife also, and it nearly ended in divorce. (laughs) We, we can joke about it now. We're still happily married but yes. it's to let someone into your first draft that is uh, I think maybe you can get used to it over time but it's very daunting it's very wow. stressful so I I really like working alone so actually this is like my dream job right I, yeah. I mean obviously I would love to see some of my characters on television but I think someone else going to have to write that that screenplay for me
3: Yeah, I look forward. Um, You have set series, as I mentioned, in Sydney, in Paris. Some of your books are set in England or have British characters on vacation in Europe. It feels like a really, and I would say unusually broad range of settings. How is it that your settings are so international? Well, I think it's because
1: I'm from Belgium, right? But when I started writing, I lived in Hong Kong, mm. and I knew I was going to write in English. I, my, my mother tongue is Dutch. I wasn't going to write in Dutch or Flemish, as we say, because, uh-huh. I mean, the, the market's a bit small. <laughs> yes. um, also, I wanted to write in English. And, uh-huh. uh, well, for French kissing, obviously, I didn't choose an English-speaking um, country. But when you live in Belgium, France is the country you go to the most. We go to Paris a lot. Like, really, I know the city really well. and. Yeah. It's it, it just seems much sexier to set my book in Paris instead yeah, of Brussels. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> Abroad is always more exotic, right? Yeah. So, uh, But most of my books now are definitely set in the U.S., and I will say that's also for commercial reasons. Uh-huh. Because yeah. most of the readers are in the U.S., and most readers want to... I think they do prefer to read in their own t- I mean, I don't know this for sure, but yeah, 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 although that being said, I have said books in the u k that have been very popular as well, but uh-huh. um, I think it's because I am not from the u k or the u s yeah, and I get to choose, so You're right. I choose and back in now with the, after the pandemic i i haven't traveled but we did used to travel quite a lot so it's mm. fun to like feature a setting where you've been like i've set a book in thailand and in hong kong also so mm. and mm. some readers do find that interesting plus it's it's more um, fun for me because it's not always the same right it's like right. to mix it up a little bit
3: yeah for sure um you Uh, as you've mentioned, self-publish. Why did you decide to go that route? Doesn't it cut into your writing time and take up bandwidth that could be used for creative projects? It seems just kind of like a lot of work, work. Well, I think
1: there's various reasons because when I started, there weren't that many publishers that would publish lesbian romance. Mm. You had Bold Strokes and Bella. But also, Mm -hmm. I mean... I had time and I didn't have to work and the Kindle had just come out Mm. and I was reading about these self-publishers that were doing really well and I said, well, why don't I just try it, you know? And I was very lucky timing-wise because when I released my first books, there wasn't the amount of lesbian romance that there is now. There were very few and the readership was hungry already and I, I really managed... In that short period of time to make a name for myself, Uh I think I still benefit from that now. And to go with a publisher now, I I wouldn't do that because I like to have control. Mm. And plus, of course, it's a lot of work, but... I mean, I work together with my wife, right? Like, I, we always say I do all the fun jobs and she does all the annoying jobs. <laughs> it's true. It's true. <laughs> so we work in, in our company together and like she then maybe has a bit more of the publishing role. And I'm mm-hmm. the I get to do my creative things, but also I only write in the morning. I can't write a full day. That that doesn't happen. I know uh-huh. there are writers who do this, and wow, well, I applaud them. But I can only write in the morning, and then it's done.
3: So may I ask what time you start in the morning?
1: I used to start a lot earlier, but now maybe between eight and nine. Okay, Just regular regular time. Yeah, depends yeah. what time I get out of my bed. <laughs> I try to do four half-hour sessions, so that's two hours of writing, and then I'm done. Then Uh my brain says, done. And I mean, of course, in the beginning, I said, I want to write more, I want to write more, but now I just, I accept that this is how it is. I know now, right? 10 years, Mm -hmm. I know. In the morning, I do my writing, and then in the afternoon, I I have a lot of marketing to do. So in the afternoon, I do my marketing, and
3: that works out pretty well. You seem to be quite disciplined about your social media usage. I wonder, do you have, given that you are self-publishing and that, you know, there is a lot that could be done, kind of, can you tell me about your philosophy of social media engagement and what you've chosen to focus on?
1: I'm not that active on social media. I do have a Facebook group and Mm. I feel much more comfortable sharing in the group because it's private, right? Mm. Like people actively have to ask to join I mean mm-hmm. anyone can join but you do still have to ask. It's not yeah. the same as like broadcasting on on Instagram but I do maintain an Instagram and a Facebook page but that's uh-huh. it and I I don't post about my personal life because my uh-huh. life is not instagrammable like, uh-huh. at all <laughs> my cat my cat is very instagrammable but but I I just I don't want to waste my time pretending that my life is instagrammable <laughs> because it's not you know I sit at my desk that's what I do you know so and and then because right now we have like BookTok, which is like huge on TikTok. And everyone like, oh, you need to get onto BookTok. And I was like, oh my God, I think I'm too old for that. And then I would need to hire someone. But I think, oh, is my readership really on BookTok? Yeah. I wonder. Because my characters yeah. are a little bit older. Uh-huh. I don't know. But I yeah. don't spend a lot of time on social media at all. Huh. For me, it's not worth it. I have a newsletter and I do send out my newsletter every two weeks, and I prefer to connect that way. Yeah. So, but yeah, yeah. socials has never really been my thing. I also don't follow anyone on socials. My brain Whoa. cannot
3: handle. That's... Ugh. The discipline. It's impressive. But it's um, not a matter of discipline
1: for me. It drives me crazy. <laughs> I don't want to see that. If I want to know what's going on with my friend, I'll go see my friend, right? I oh don't my have goodness. to see it on Instagram.
3: See, to me, I'm a very nosy person, but I'm also very lazy. So just being able to find out what people are doing without actually having to <laughs> go to see them. Oh, it's perfect. No, it's true. It's
1: true. <laughs> I do get that, but
3: yeah, I don't yeah. know. For some reason, I cannot deal with that. So... <laughs> Good. Um, So when I reached out to invite you onto the show, you replied that being neurodivergent, you would need to see the questions in advance because improvisation is a no-no. Do you mind talking about how that has shaped your creative process and how you go about uh, your career as a writer and as a a self-published author?
1: I mean, improvisation uh and... In anything but writing, it's, it's very difficult for me. Give mm. me a piece of paper and I'll, I'll come up with something. But I say <laughs> no to a lot of things. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I used to not. Like, when there was something, oh, I have to do this. But now I know I just say no, right? If I don't want to do it or, or if it gives me too much stress, I just yeah. don't do it yeah. because I can. Yeah. But I also think that, I mean, that's just like for marketing. Mm. But for my work I do think, because I'm extremely sensitive like to everything, mm. and I think it makes me look at my characters from every possible angle, and I go through every possible way things could go or what they are thinking, and I think it does give my characters a lot of depth and a lot of emotion, because I think I have a lot of emotion in my books, right? And I think that's mm-hmm. what readers really respond to, yeah. And uh, I mean I, I mean, I'm sure plenty of other non-neurodivergent authors have a lot of emotion as well but for me it's like it's like my thing and I think that that does help me in my writing. And I mean I I do write romance which is fluffy mm-hmm. and happy and happy ending but it's never just that. There's yeah. always something else. I, Because as I said before, like writing is very therapeutic for me. Like I'm always working through something and they always say, oh, you shouldn't do that in your books. But I get a lot of response to that. Like readers really appreciate that. So I just keep
3: on doing it, you know. Yeah. No, I mean, I, your books really stood out to me because I do think there's something a little different there. I mean, there are the elements that, that one expects from a romance novel but there is I think a great understanding of character and kind of pointers you know on how to have better relationships, and I think partly that's because there is a broader presentation of kind of as you said, different ways of seeing relationships and different ways of approaching relationships that um yeah, felt very fresh and um interesting to me. Thank you very much. <laughs> Harper Bliss, I really enjoyed talking with you. Thank you so much for joining us on Working. Thank you.
2: June, that was such a fun conversation. But first, I wanted to start with something very basic because I don't think I knew this about you. Are you a romance novel fan? And do you have a favorite Harper Bliss book? So I think I have a slightly unusual relationship
3: to the genre, which is Mm. I enjoy it and I can blow through a lot of romance novels in a short time, which I think (laughs) is pretty common and is a big part of why they are a commercial success. But I tend to go a long time without reading them. And then I reach for them in a pretty specific situation, which is when I have a lot on my mind and I'm seeking distraction. So I first discovered Harper's Books when I was in Edinburgh looking for a place to live. I was so stressed out and I couldn't focus on anything except (laughs) her very fun mix of soap opera and romance. And I started with the Pink Bean series because I love the idea of characters from one novel popping up in another. I always Mm -hmm. enjoy it when non-genre writers do that. You know, the British novelist Jonathan Coe, who is definitely not a romance writer, he does it. And it always makes me like giddy to recognize <laughs> a character I know from somewhere else. Yeah. So, yeah, I, it was a very specific time, although I've definitely listened to a lot more since. <laughs> I w- would say that my favorite of her books was This Foreign Affair, and the characters from
2: that Pink Bean book
3: also show up in the French Kissing series. So uh-huh. it's a very sexy game of Tetris.
2: <laughs> well, that's the most appealing description of a book that I think that I've ever heard. Um <laughs> Another part of your conversation that I wanted to touch on was Harper talking about self-publishing. Self-publishing is definitely the easiest way to get your work out there, but it's also a route that comes with its own set of difficulties. And I was wondering if you have a take on self-publishing versus finding a publisher.
3: Well, you know, it's a topic that's been very hotly debated, especially among genre writers, you know, romance, YA, sci-fi, fantasy, mystery writers. Mm -hmm. And I really recommend the YouTube channel of another former working guest, uh, Michelle Schusterman. Uh, She has some really great and very well-informed discussion of that question. But uh, as someone who is outside that world, I guess the question that I would encourage people who are wondering whether they should do self-publishing or go the mainstream publishing route is, are you an entrepreneur? Mm. Uh, When you think about the tasks that you would need to do if you self-publish and not if you don't, like whether that's a matter of handling or hiring people to handle the copy editing and proofing and the cover design and the logistics of like formatting files and uploading to Kindle Direct Publishing or getting books (laughs) printed, do all those things seem like a fun challenge and something you'd like to spend your non-writing time on? Or just does it seem like a monumental pain that just fills you with (laughs) dread? And if it's the latter, you may well be a good candidate for traditional publishing.
2: Yeah, I totally agree. It's definitely, as you said, like a matter of how much work you want to take on at any given moment. Yeah. And I loved what Harper said about a secret to productivity. This is a sort of a related question, I guess, being mm. hiring help, because I feel like a lot of the advice that we hear and give on this show is about what you can do on your own. But it is true, like having other people help you is monumentally helpful to yeah. your productivity, or it could yeah. be at least. It and do you be, have yeah. any tips in that regard?
3: So it's not something I have personal experience with. I think like mm-hmm. you, I'm I, because I suspect, Karen, we're only children, so we just want to <laughs> take care of things ourselves. Why would I involve someone else when I can mm-hmm. just take care of this thing? But I think about it in a similar way to your last question. You're Like, what parts of the creative life do you enjoy? What mm-hmm. bits are actually fun and exciting to you? What parts do you have to force yourself to do in <laughs> even a basic way? You know, and so considering hiring someone to handle the latter, you know, attitude. Yeah, And this is something where I've seen a lot of YouTube creators talk about. Um, you know, if you think of your creative practice as a business, you should do the things that you're good at and that you enjoy. And most of all, that only you can do. You know, you should figure out. And then on top of that, you should figure out, like, be very cold and you know, and just clear eyed about how much you're making from, for example, a YouTube video and how much it costs you to make them. You know, if it's $60 an hour, and it would cost you $70 an hour to farm out the video editing, then maybe that's not the best idea. Obviously, it's very hard to provide real numbers about imaginary examples. But (laughs) ultimately, you know, consider your costs and be very ruthless about calculating whether you can afford to get help or maybe if you can afford not to.
2: Yeah. And to pivot a little bit, I love the part of your conversation about the perception of female aimed media as well. I think I've talked about this before, Mm. but there is an inherent bias, I think, against stuff that's geared towards women or younger people or basically anyone who's not an old straight (laughs) white man. But Mm. there are obviously huge audiences out there for this stuff. And to refuse to acknowledge that really limits what you consume and enjoy. How do we deal with that kind of prejudice? I mean... Of course, I fully believe everything I've said,
3: but I hear myself and every single time I talk about soap operas Mm -hmm. or romances, I always seem to preface it with, you know, how I'm really like a super intellectual, but I still like them. Mm -hmm. And, you know, like one day, I guess I'll be able to share my love of soapy narratives without a self-justifying preamble, but Mm -hmm. I'm not sure it's happened yet. Uh, Or, but maybe... We should just remind people how good, good soaps and good anime and good mystery novels and all these other slightly embarrassing genres are. Like, it's just good. Like, not everything is for everybody, but it's no hardship, you know?
2: Yeah, the genre, like really, the genre of a thing doesn't define whether it's low or highbrow art, which is something, I don't know, it comes up more and more often, I think, as we try to move out of those. And it becomes very hard to, like, have productive conversations with people sometimes because they so refuse to acknowledge that. Yeah. And again, on a totally different note, it was very refreshing to hear Harper say that she can really only write in the morning. I feel like the tendency is for us to punish ourselves for not working all day, but sometimes that just doesn't work. Are you a morning person or a night owl or do you have a specific window where you know that you'll be the most productive? I mean, it's funny that you say about like accepting how much writing
3: you can actually get done Mm -hmm. because that was one of those things that people would say to me and I'd always... I never really truly accepted what they were saying at face value until I had my own book to write, you mm-hmm. know. So many people write after they've done a full-time job or after they've done a full-time job and taken care of children and yeah. a whole bunch of other responsibilities. So like it feels really decadent to say, well, <laughs> oh, you know, I can only write for 4 hours a day right. or whatever it is. But you kind of have to listen to that inner voice. There are only so many hours in the day and a lot of tasks to take care of. And so if you're able to, say, spend the morning writing and then spend the afternoon taking care of administrative and logistical tasks or research, you know, things that have to be done, that just seems smart. So yeah, I think we should all, when we can, just learn to kind of recognize what's really productive for Mm. ourselves and since you asked about my own creative Mm. rhythms that's something that's changed completely for me over the Mm. years I used to be an absolute total night owl (laughs) but now mornings are definitely my most productive time and Mm -hmm. right now that's partly because of the time difference uh, between Britain and the States it's amazing when there are absolutely no emails coming in until like 2 p.m. That's so <laughs> fantastic. But but even, even before that was the case, I mm-hmm. have learned to love the mornings. What about you?
2: I also really used to be a night owl. I think this was more true during college and like after graduating yeah. just because like that is when it's easiest to be a night yes. owl and not Who suffer cares, any real right? consequences yeah. for it. Right. right. Um, since then, I don't know. I feel like I still have to figure out what my best productivity window Mm. is, um, it tends to be right now more an issue of me just sitting down and really focusing rather than like having the right time of day to do it. But that said, like, I kind of refuse to work post like five or six o'clock in the the (laughs) evening. I'm like, this is my time now. Like the work time is over. So I will try to get everything done in the morning and afternoon. (laughs) Karen,
3: this is uh, I'm I'm so hearing a topic for our annual New Year's resolutions (laughs) show. So. Can't wait to chew that over with you.
2: I'm excited to see what you pull out of it because I'm not entirely sure and I'm I'm very eager to find out. Well, that's all the time that we have for this episode. And if you've enjoyed the show, please remember to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and then you'll never miss an episode. And just a reminder that by joining Slate Plus, you'll get ad-free podcasts, extra segments on shows like the Waves and Culture Gap Fest, and you'll never hit a paywall on the Slate site. To learn more, go to slate.com slash working plus.
3: Thank you so much to Harper Bliss and to our producer, Cameron Drews. We'll be back next week with Karen's conversation with Dice Tosumi, Robert Kondo, and Sarah Sampson, the minds behind the new Netflix series Oni, Thunder God's Tale. Until then, get back to work.